Okay, friends, the story begins. We are on the middle slash bottom of page 39. We're starting the blessings of the Shema. Now, it's interesting. These aren't really... The name is a little deceiving. It's not really blessings of the Shema. We don't say, Asher God has commanded us with his mitzvahs of the recitation of the Shema. We don't say any blessing of that variation. A more accurate way of saying it are the blessings that precede the Shema. These are blessings that precede the Shema. And they are essentially as uh, here as a preface to the Shema. These blessings are what get us in the mood, in the right frame of mind, rather, to properly say the Shema. The, again, the, the nucleus of prayer, the nucleus of davening, is the Shema and the Amida. Everything else kind of developed afterward as a way to climax to that point. Whereas the Zohar says this is the ladder of Jacob, where one end is touching the ground, the other end touching the heavens, and each part of prayer is that rung and getting us closer and closer. Closer to our truest form of ourselves, closer to God. Closer to understanding and internalizing the soul, why we exist. The blessing, again, there's two blessings. There, there are actually are a total of seven seven Shema-oriented blessings. Three of them are recited in the morning. Four of them recited in the evening. In the morning, during the Shachris, as we're going through right now, two of them are recited prior to the Shema. One of them is recited post-Shema, pre-Amida. Just trying to give an overview of the structure here. Today we're going to dive into the message of the first blessing that precedes the Shema. It goes from page 39, right, where it says blessings of the Shema, Baruch Hashem, blessed are you, Lord. You see it? It's a long blessing because it goes all the way until um, the middle of 41. Or 78 if you're, from page 78 if you're me. Oh, do you, oh, you have the weekday uh, the weekday one? Yeah, I have a weekday and then I have a separate Shabbos one. Okay, so so then 78 in that one. But where it says, Baruch Atah Hashem, Yotzer HaMe'orot, right before Ahavat Olam, right before, Lord our God, you have loved us. That's all one blessing. It's a one long blessing. And today we're going to explore the purpose of this blessing, the meditation that it provides, what we can learn from it. Sounds good? Well, we're, we're at first... Sentence or verse ends at hakol. That that's not a blessing in and of itself. It's all one. No, it's one long blessing. The general rule is, and you you actually raise a very important point. And there's a whole halachic discussion: what constitutes a blessing? How do you define blessing? The general rule is, with exceptions, that a blessing has a beginning, baruch Hashem, in the beginning. And then a conclusion, Baruch Hashem in the conclusion, which is what this is. It starts with Baruch Hashem, turn two pages, it ends with Baruch Hashem. That's the rule with long blessings. Um, there are exceptions as to when a blessing, the Talmud discusses this, when a blessing 
would not have a beginning and an end. If it's a short blessing, like Shahakol Nihiabidvaro, like you're putting or or you know, whatever, something a one-liner. Or if it's prefaced by a series of blessings like the Amida. But in this case, it's a long blessing. It's not a one-liner. So it has a beginning and has an end, and its end is several pages later. So does that mean that if you pause at any point in the middle for, let's say, more than three seconds, that would constitute an uh, in interruption? Uh, no, that that would be fine. Um, it just the, the practical significance would be to what degree you're allowed to interrupt. But pausing wouldn't be an interruption. Good, good question. You know, let's say if you had to run to the bathroom, would you say Asher? Yes. So, so there are there are other practical implications. <clears throat> let's read the first, just the first paragraph. Blessed are you, Lord, Lord our God, King of the universe, who forms light and creates darkness, who makes peace and creates all things. So, by the way, what we're about to do with this blessing is actually dive into understanding. How the bless, how the angels, supernal angels, praise God, and we'll discuss why that's important. But the first thing we do is we recognize that God is the one who forms light; He is the one who creates dark. It's an interesting thing. What we're saying right now is that not only is light, goodness, and positivity a creation from God. But even darkness and negativity is a creation for God. For, from God, we usually understand darkness as an absence of of light. There's actually a debate amongst philosophers, Jewish philosophers: is darkness a thing, or is it just an absence? And the implication over here is that it's an actual thing. Badness, negativity, badness. I don't know, but negativity. Darkness. These things are not just absences of God's presence. They are an extension of God's presence. We we mentioned right before the recording started, right? We mentioned that somebody passed away. And John, what was your reaction? Baruch Dayan Emet. Something negative happened. And you thanked God. You praised God. Blessed be the true judge. Right, the Talmud says that we have to thank God for, and by the, I, I, uh, just for the record, by by far the worst subject that I hate talking about this <laughs> because it's so difficult and it's something nobody should ever be tested with. But the Talmud says that we got to thank God for the bad as we do for the good, because God is the creator not only of light of goodness, God is the creator of dark of badness. But what we need to do is peek into that darkness and see how it's not just an absence, but there's actual substance there. When you peek into the darkness and you analyze it and you think about it, what you'll ultimately see is that there's a creator behind it. But the trick is to not get used to it, not to get comfortable with it. So I'll tell you a story. There were two Hasidim. Two Hasidim 
that came into some sort of basement, like some sort of tavern type thing. I don't know if there was like an underground for bringing or there was some sort of backstory behind it. And one of them says to the other, it's too dark. I can't see anything here. Everybody else was inside. <laughs> they were able to see. So they said, your eyes will get used to it. Don't worry. He says, that's a problem. That's a problem. Not, not only is it dark, <laughs> I'm comfortable with it being dark. I'm okay with it being dark. That's a real problem. When Moshe, it's actually this week's Torah portion, Moshe is raised in a palace, an Egyptian palace. He wasn't subject to slavery, as were his brethren. And he sees the Jewish people in in under slavery, being worked. And he sees... He's disturbed. What's he disturbed by? The Torah says he's disturbed by their burden, their sivlotam, which means translations are quite dangerous because sivlotam could mean burden, but there's another meaning, tolerance. Moshe was disturbed by their tolerance, by their tolerance for slavery. How long have they been slaves for at this point? Must have been several decades. Their great grandparents, or maybe grandparents, was Joseph and the brothers. They all died out. So they've been they've been slaves already for several, um, maybe three, four, uh, several generations. Again, slavery was two hundred and ten years, right? And Moses was charged by God to let the Jewish people go when he was eighty. So there were slaves for well over 120 years. Not well over 120 years, well over 100 years at this point. They are slaves for a long time. And Moses is disturbed, not because they're in pain, but because they're tolerant of that pain, they're comfortable with that pain. They stopped seeking how they can actually find God there. They've just made it, this is reality. And before reciting the Shema, as we're going to do later, we first recognize that God is the Yotzer Or. God is the creator of light. He's the Vore Choshech. He's the creator of darkness. And he's the one who makes peace and creates everything. As we learned in chapter 26 of Tanya, the darkness is actually a deeper expression of God. Sometimes something could be so intense, you won't experience it as light. You'll experience it as something, as, as darkness, as blinding. You know, like when the when the moon is closer to the sun, it's actually darker. <laughs> you see a full bright moon when it's furthest from the sun. So as you get closer to the source, you don't get to experience as much light. You can't handle as much light. commentaries point out something interesting slide down to the page to the, toward the bottom of the page I'm going to look at the Hebrew actually 
I just learned this today. I never noticed this. Um, if you look in the Hebrew, the bottom to third line. We start to praise God. I mean, we don't start. We continue to praise God. We say, Kel Baruch, the blessed God. Gadol who is great in knowledge. Hechin Ufa'al, who's prepared and made the radiance of the sun. Tov he's a good creator. Kavodashmo, his name is honorable, etc. The praises over here go in sequence of alphabetical order. They follow the alphabet. Um, on Shabbos, we sing a different song instead. Instead, we sing Keladon. You know that one? That's yeah. also in sequences of in the sequence of the alphabetical order as well. So it's a different song, a different theme, because it's more consistent with the theme of Shabbos. But they both follow the Aleph Bays. And the commentaries point out that the reason for that was the author of this was one of the Talmudists, or actually pre-Talmudists, Rabbi Elazar Hakalir. And he put it in alphabetical order as it was most of his prayers that he authored because the praising with God with the alphabet, what that, signif what that signifies is God's relevance to the world because it's the alphabet with which God used to create the world. We're using the world itself to praise him. We're saying that this God who is the creator of light, who is the creator of darkness, who creates what seems good and who creates what seems bad has never forsa forsaken the world. He's relevant to the world. Um, that back on the first verse, why, why do we touch the, the tefillin? Yeah. Like for light, it's the arm tefillin and for darkness, it's the head tefillin. Yeah. Good question. Very good question. The, The answer is is more kabbalistic. The short answer: it's a kabbalistic thing. <laughs> but That's to, what but I would to guess, but but to elaborate real briefly, the darkness represents a higher level of revelation. A revelation so great that it appears as if it's dark and negative. It's it's like um, it's like a little bit of rain. Is light, you know, too much rain. It's like too much goodness. <laughs> you know, if we're not able to handle that, it appears dark from the recipient's perspective, right? It's a higher level, essentially. Um, and somehow, from in Kabbalistic lingo and in Kabbalistic perspective, the armed fill-in is that lower level, that head fill-in is that higher level, which is consistent with halacha because the armed fill-in, uh, the, the head fill-in is considered to be holier. So has has a holier status. Well, when I was listening, I don't remember exactly what the context was. I was listening to one of those recordings from Rabbi Gordon and mm -hmm. he was explaining, I remember if it was a Tanya or Parsha recording, but about the um Yetzer, Yetzer Tov is yeah. in, in the right arm and he made a connection with the mind or the right. brain. And right. I think that more the the folly or maybe the it it's a 
Har is in, in the brain? The the Yetzir Tov, I mean, the Yetzir Tov and Yetzir are both on different sides of the heart. But the brain is where, is also where the Yetzir Tov and the, and the divine soul resides. Starts in the brain. Oh, maybe that's why he made a connection between the brain and the right. Right. Arm. Yeah. So that's connected to this then as far as the Kabbalist. There, there, there is that relevance that the brain is on a higher level than the heart also. The brain should dominate the heart. and and the, the I mean, we don't want darkness to dominate the light, but we want the creator of the darkness. <laughs> you know, the, the God. Now, what we're about to do is again experience how the angels are praising God. Right? Then I'm I'm gonna scroll down to the third paragraph. Do you see that? On page thirty nine. Uh, sorry, on page forty. I apologize. I, I turned the page of that sign, everybody. Page forty. The name of the Almighty God. The great, powerful, and awe-inspiring king, holy is he. They all take upon themselves the yoke of heavenly kingship. Who's they? We're referring to the angels. They all take upon the, uh, themselves the yoke of heavenly kingship, one from the other, and with love grant permission to each other to sanctify their maker with joyous spirit, with pure speech, and sacred melody, all exclaiming in unison with awe and declaring in reverence. All the angels declare, we're going through ex experiencing how all the angels are now praising God. They all say together, the Kedusha. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. The whole earth is full of his glory. I have a question. Yeah. So where is the source that the angels actually say that? Good question. It is, I mean, it's brought many Kabbalistic, you know, books. You'll see it in the Zohar and stuff, but you actually see it in the Talmud as well, and even pre-Talmud. So there, there are classical, explicit sources. Um, but but the truth is, there, there's actually a debate as to who wrote this prayer. So when the Talmud brings. Uh, talks about the angels praising God. Is the source is the Talmud the source for the sitter, <laughs> or is the sitter the source for the Talmud? Depends who wrote the prayer. It's possible that this is the source, because I could tell you that I could, you know, I could find it for you in the Zohar theoretically, or find it in the Talmud, or find it. But Ezra, in his court, I believe, wrote this prayer. Well, they predated the Talmud and the Zohar, so it could be that this is the source. That would make sense. Yeah. Um, it, it, it would also depend, and I, I don't have the whole history straight, so I apologize, but it would depend on what point in history this was integrated into the Siddur and into that blessing. Because there was a period in time where the Siddur was a bit of an open project. So it's a, it's a very good question. Why are we going, uh, why are we elaborating so much, almost three pages, on how the angels, two and a half pages, on how the angels praise God? I'm not an angel, what do I care? 
So there's two reasons. There's the most basic reason cited among commentaries. And then there's the reason that um, the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, elaborates on in his teachings. But let's start with the simple, literal reason. Why do we care how the angels praise God and discuss the Kedusha that the angels go through and discuss their method of prayer that they use to praise the greatness? What do I care? Right? So on, on one level, you could see it as inspiring, how celestial beings praise God. Others' commentaries, there's a class of commentaries known as the Abu Dharam, Abu Dharam, one of the earliest commentaries on the Siddur. And he says it's actually to negate idolatry. Those who praise the angels as their gods or the celestial beings know that they are praising God. <laughs> Go straight to the source. But there's a deeper reason. And this is important. We know from our Tanya studies that we have not only one soul, but two souls. I'm going to say that in English. We have not only one drive, one perspective, one way of emotionally relating to the world and to people, but we have two separate ways, two separate drives, two separate um, mindsets, two separate emotional attitudes, sets of emotional attitudes. We have our divine soul. That's what we mean by soul, right? Our internal selves, our inner psyche. And we have a divine soul that is God-oriented, purpose-oriented, which is what we're trying to develop and make more comfortable throughout the process of prayer. And we have our animal soul. What motivates the divine soul is the Torah study we're doing right now. What motivates the animal soul? This guy. Diet Coke. Diet Coke. <laughs> <laughs> right? And everybody has their own animal soul, their own human selfish drive. When we recite the Shema, what we're going to do is we're going to say Shema Yisrael. What does Shema Yisrael mean? Listen, Yisrael. Listen, my Yisrael is referring to our soul, the spark of that soul. We're telling the soul to listen up. Remember that even though you've come down to this physical world where there's so much lust, there's so much selfishness, there's so much um, drive for survival, life so much seems to orient around how much money you make rather than how good of a person you are. Despite all of that, remember that Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, remember where you came from, remember that God is truly one. Okay, our divine soul will immediately be inspired. Right? But if the animal soul is not ready for that inspiration, that inspiration will come and the inspiration will go. We got to get the animal soul open and comfortable so that not only does the animal soul enjoy Diet Coke, the animal soul says, wow, that's actually interesting. There's actually depth and meaning to existence. It's not just about that moment, uh, that bubbly feel in the moment and that caffeine boost in the moment. But there's an actual purpose and trajectory for which why I exist. 
I find that to be meaningful. I find learning about this to be enjoyable. We want to engage the animal soul, not just fight it. We want to reroute it. And we want to do that before we say the Shema, so that the Shema can mean something not only to the divine soul, but mean something to the animal soul. You're with me? Make sense? Yeah. Okay, now what does that have to do with how the angels bless God? Okay. The reason is because your animal soul is an animal soul while in your body. It went through an evolution, a journey. It actually has a source. Its source was actually these angels praising God. Ultimately, it evolved. And this is what Kabbalah explains, that ultimately your, your animal soul evolved into an animal soul. But if you strip it down to its purest form, it's an angel praising God. It's no coincidence that the angels are described anthro... I'm going to try this word. Anthropomorphically. Did I get it? The angels are described... <laughs> the angels are described anthropomorphically using animal features. And by the way, the, the earliest source for this is the prophecies of Yechezkel, of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's chariot? Ezekiel's chariot, right? Yeah. Ezekiel has this vision of this divine chariot where God is on top of the chariot and the chariot's being carried by animals. These animals were angelic. At that point, they were sacred. But when they came down to this world, into our human body, they're actually an animal selfish soul. And what this prayer is supposed to do, it's supposed to remind us that, hey, you may be self-oriented, self-centered. But if you strip down that drive and remember where you came from, there's actually raw energy that has just been mischanneled. Kind of like why Yitzchak, Isaac, wanted to give the blessings to Asa. While everybody else saw an animal soul, Yitzchak saw mischanneled energy. Instead of cutting out the energy, let's rechannel the energy. But he was too progressive for his time in terms of parenting. <laughs> he was ahead of his years, Isaac. <laughs> but we can fix that. We're no longer ahead of our years. We have the ability to not just cut out the animal soul. We spend a lot of time fighting our animal souls, which is important. Before you train the animal, you got to make sure it doesn't attack you, right? But now we want to actually train it. We want to remember where we came from. We want to reroute ourselves. Go back to the beginning of the blessing. God is the creator. The, he who forms light, creates darkness, makes peace. We're trying to make peace between both souls. We're trying to bring harmony. We're not trying to just suppress our animalistic, selfish drives so we could experience God for a moment when we say the Shema. We want to sensitize our animal souls and realize that it actually has potential and we just need to learn how to channel it. In other words, that drive that you have for whatever you have is not a bad thing. You know what would happen if I didn't have a drive to Diet Coke? It, uh, my drive for Diet Coke, but it's so embarrassing. 
class is like about to start and I quickly have to get in the car, run to Rite Aid because I ran out. <laughs> that that's that's motivation, right? Which means that motivation, if I'm inspired enough, if I'm sensitized enough, if I daven properly, I can be motivated to get in the car to to do a mitzvah and to to go out of my way and push myself to learn more Torah or to help another person. But if I didn't have that animal drive and life was just like, yeah, whatever, then I wouldn't be able to reroute anything. Let, let me put it this way. Your divine soul knows the truth and it's going to experience it when it says the Shema. Your animal soul has passion. It happens to be self-centered passion because that's just how we're born. But we're reminding ourselves where the animal soul really came from and how that passion can be transformed and work together with the divine soul. So you can ride the animal rather than fight the animal. So I'll tell you, uh, make sense? So far, yeah. Okay, so I'll tell you, I'll tell you a analogy. I actually just read this today. There was a rabbi, one of the early Hasidic leaders known as the Dubna Magid. The Magid, the preacher of Dubna. The Dubna Magid was famous for his analogies and parables. He says there was once a widower. Unfortunately, his wife passed away at a young age, left him with a son. He married... He remarried another lady. She was a widow. Her husband passed away. And left her with the young daughter. So they get married and the two families unite, right? Step-siblings. The wife senses that the husband seems to kind of favor the son over the daughter. Well, understandably so. It's his biological son. Right? He didn't really marry the stepdaughter. He married the wife. <laughs> so it's going to take longer to get used to this relationship. It's going to set, you know, it's not, a, it's not as, uh, it might not be as natural as a biological child. Conversely, the, the husband senses that the wife seems to be favoring the daughter. Understandably so, but there seems to be tension in this marriage. There's a lot of tension in this marriage. Son, daughter, favoritism. And now there's like this superior superiority complex between the two. This isn't a true story, don't worry, necessarily. The Son and daughter, again, they're just step-siblings. They're not blood-related. Get older. They kind of do their own thing. And they actually get married with each other, to each other. Eventually get married. And now all of a sudden, the tension in their marriage has been released. Because these two competitors, quote-unquote, <laughs> have come together, have united. The problem has been solved. So the Dubna Magid says, this is what we're trying to do. We have the animal soul and we have the divine soul. And they're competing with each other. 
But if we can bring them together, if we can create a shidduch, a marriage, we're going to see that God is the maker of peace. It's going to actually re it's going to release tension. And it starts with the blessings of the Shema. It starts with realizing how the angels praise God with reminding the animal soul where it once came from. And how do these angels praise God? Bottom of page 40. They say, Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy is God. What does the word holy mean? Separate. Separate. Different. Why is Shabbos the holiest day of the week? It's the most different day of the week. It's the most distinct day of the week. It's a separate day of the week. Right? Holy people are are weird because they're different than everybody else. I mean, weird in the literal sense of the word. They're different. They stick out. Perhaps unrelatable. Think of a holy person. You're not like buddy buddy with them. <laughs> you can try, but it's and they're not gonna they'll be very respectful and they'll think of the Rebbe. Think of the love that the Rebbe had for people and the love that people had for the Rebbe. Yet you weren't buddy buddy with Rebbe. <laughs> you know, it's somebody who's <laughs> it, it and it's not that it wasn't because he was God forbid on the high horse and I'm holy and I'm holier than that. Not at all. There was an incredible charisma. It's just the way it is. The angels are calling God holy three times. Not only do you and I feel that God is holy, is way out of my league. The angels who are in heaven, who have a clear, who have a deeper sense of clarity, they don't have the same obstructions, spiritual obstructions and klipas that we have to go through. They see things more clearly. They're in a more spiritual realm. Yet even they see God as holy. Even they see God as, whoa. Then take a look at the next line. We see, we have the Ofanim and the Chayot. Different types of angels. It brings the source on the bottom, footnote two, like to references Yechezkel and Isaiah. With a mighty sound rise toward the Seraphim, facing them, they offer praise and they say, Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. They do this with a Ra'ash Gadol, with an incredible sound. They're even further. Wherever that place is, right? Bless God from your place. Wherever you are, they feel even further from God. So their passion is even greater. Which often is how it works. The further you are, the more passionate you are. If you felt really close to God, you would have a calm, peaceful love. If you felt like you need to be closer to God, you're going to have a passionate, loud. There's a There was a famous Hasidic Rebbe, Rebbe Aaron of Karlin. Rebbe Aaron of Karlin was a student of the Magid of Mezrich, a colleague of uh, Rabbi Shner Zalman of Liadi, the author of the Tanya. So while the Alter Rebbe branched out of the Magid's Hasidus and started Chabad, he started the Karliner uh, version or approach to Hasidic 
uh, of, of Hasidic Jewry, serving God. And while they were both had Hasidic perspectives and how they served God, they actually had their own styles. Chabad was a lot more calm, was a lot more intentional, was a lot more calculated, a lot more focused on educating ourselves to become close to God. But Carlene, man, these guys were on fire. And to this day, Carlene or Hasidim are known to scream and shul. And they're loud. People were quite cynical of, of Hasidim in general when Hasidim started. But they were even more cynical of the Karliner Hasidim because they were sticking out so much. That what they were doing was simply weird. And there was a prestigious Rav who was quite cynical and challenged the Baron of Karlin. His name is Rabbi Avraham something. I forgot his last name. But he was a prestigious rabbi, a noted rabbi. This is going back 200 years ago. And they said, where do you get the chutzpah to start yelling and show like this? Where's the decorum? He says to him, Avramel. His name is Rabbi Avraham something. He starts addressing him, not only by his first name, but he created a nickname for him. <laughs> On the spot, he says, Avramel. <laughs> Imagine you're being re reprimanded by a rabbi. And you start saying, um, you start nicknaming him with his first name. <laughs> You're going to push some buttons. The guy says, why are you calling me that? He's angry at him now. Not only are you not taking my reprimand seriously, you're mocking me. He says, why are you yelling? He says, I guess you pushed a button. That's why we're yelling too. Because prayer pushes a button. Prayer pushes a button. It's real. These angels yell, with a mighty sound, because they feel like they want to become closer, and it's real. There's a book authored in the 1500s called the Tayelis Toilaas Yaakov. It's a Kabbalistic book, um, authored again 1500s, probably around the time of the Arizal. Uh, pre, pre Hasidic, pre Baal Shem Tov, several hundred years prior to the existence of the Baal Shem Tov. But in the book, he explains something quite interesting. When we recite Kadosh, 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 when we discuss the angels' praises over here, we're kind of just discussing a, um, I don't want to say a historical fact, but a, just a fact. We're discussing a fact. When we recite Kedusha during the Amida, as we're going to later on in the repetition of the Amida, page 47, right? Take a look quickly at page 47 during the repetition of the Amida, where we recite the Kedusha. At that point, we're reciting the Kedusha, but we're not saying, we're not discussing how the angels recite Kedusha. We're actually reciting the Kedusha as if we were angels. Right? During the Shema portion on page 40, we're sitting down and we're kind of just discussing what they do. 
you could stand, but you could sit here, right? During the repetition of the Amida, we stand up, our feet are together, like angels, it's much more formal. Why? So he explains that at this once you've recited the Amida, you've been refined, you can be like an angel. And you could say Kedusha like an angel. But over here at this point, in the blessings of the Shema, we're just learning about what the angels do. So we can remind ourselves, our animal selves, where we truly came from and how we can rechannel that energy. Okay, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>